Alright, welcome back again to my... This evening we are looking at a more in-depth study on verse 19. Um, again, we're dealing with true spirituality, and specifically we're looking at the evidence of true spirituality being faith in action. The concept that you have something to depend upon, and that thing should produce an action. If you're depending upon something which does not produce an action, that dependency is null and void and is considered to be worthless and should not have been made in the first place, but sometimes we have to learn by making bad dependencies. Um, so James is saying that true spirituality is evidenced by faith in action. And we're looking at verse 19 of James chapter 1 tonight to help, <coughs> excuse me, help express a little bit of that and help understand that evidence. Uh, but before we begin our study and a little bit of our review, uh, let's identify where we are at spiritually and whether we are operating in faith or outside of faith upon God and uh, if need be confessing sin that may be hindering that relationship. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather once again to um, enjoy the friendships that are here and that you've brought into play uh, in the different aspects of our life and for the opportunity to bond around your word and to wrestle with it and to test it according to <clears throat> the different verses and passages that you've given us. Uh, may, Father, we lean not on our own understanding tonight, but lean upon the understanding of the ministry of your Holy Spirit within us, teaching us and guiding us through this passage. And, and we pray, Lord, that if there's anything distracting us from this study, that you would remove that from our minds so that we can focus on your word and understand what it is that you have to say for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. We want to keep tonight's study in context. Uh, and it's one thing to go in-depth and do minuscule parts of a verse, um, whether that is a summary of a minuscule part or an in-depth fine-tooth comb review of an uh, or study of, an in, of a minuscule part, but when you start looking at various parts of verses, it's very easy, especially over the course of our study here, dealing with a lot of verses uh, on trials and tribulations, it's very easy to lose the context of where we're at and what James is getting at. Um, so one of the things that I recommend doing um, is before coming in, um, in any study you're going to, if you're looking at verse by verse, just take a, a quick minute or two to read through the entire passage or at least a few verses ahead and a few verses after um, of the one that is going to be studied. Because it's very easy to, especially when you go in depth into something, to look at just that one spot and get kind of a blinder on that you forget that this is a part of this ultimate message that's being employed in this ultimate teaching. Um, so tonight, I've got a few slides here to remind us of the context in which we find ourselves with James 1.19. Um, and again, we're dealing with trials and tribulation. And the first point that I'd like to bring out here is that James 1.19 is a part of James's exhortative discourse, which he provides to the diaspora concerning the doctrine of trials and tribulations. Um, he is exhorting them to do these things that he is identifying in James 1, um, 2 through 18 and in verse 19. So again, this is a part of an exhortation by James to utilize these biblical problem-solving devices and to operate in specific manners when the diaspora is faced with trials and tribulations. So um, keep that in mind as we go. Point two, 
Previously, James has established a number of biblical problem-solving devices, which we have just alluded to, for the believer to implement concerning trials, and that's in verses 2 through 18. James 1.19 is itself a biblical problem-solving device, uh, but as we've already looked at a number of them um, in verses 2 through 18, we want to keep this in mind. Uh, three, James has established trials as the instrument through which the believer spiritually matures. Verses 3 to 4 of chapter 1 identified this, that when we sit through and endure under a trial you, in faith, that it actually produces spiritual maturity in us. That's the byproduct of the trial. It's not what the trial was designed to do. The trial was designed originally to see what we were made of. And again, the trial was not given to us by God. Um, the trial was not brought on by God. It was, however, allowed into our life as a circumstance that God said that we could handle through Him and it depends upon us. Satan and company are the ones that are attempting to understand and learn our character uh, and really just to get us to operate in chaos uh, rather than in dependence upon God. So verses 3 to 4, again, remember that the trials are the instrument through which the believer spiritually matures, and they're not the only instrument. They are one of the instruments God uses. The real instrument is dependence upon Him through the ministry of His Holy Spirit within us. That is the instrument, whether it's a trial or not a trial. You could say that all life is a trial. Some are more, Sometimes are more trying than others. Some things elicit different responses in us than others. But that all life is a trial. Life is a circumstance. And if we are designed to glorify God and to establish that glory to those around us and to Satan and company, then life may be one of those ultimate large trials that is designed <clears throat> to show Satan and company who God is and as us being a reflection of him to reveal that through us. So life in itself is a trial, if you will. Um, but moving on to point four, in order to spiritually mature, the believer is to implement the biblical problem-solving devices, which James defines in verse verses 2 through 18. These are not, again, the only biblical problem-solving devices. These are just the ones that he mentions here in the verse, first 18 verses of James chapter 1. So spiritual maturation is accomplished, again, through depends upon God, that faith and action concept that when you depend upon him in the moment, you will be experientially grown and spiritual maturity will develop. <clears throat> Partly the biblical problem-solving devices are how God will use and deal with you in those situations. Number five, proper implementation of these biblical problem-solving devices produces spiritual growth as the believer depends upon God through His Word and the Holy Spirit to take care of him in and out of his trials. Again, the key word there is depend upon God and the Holy Spirit. And that takes various shapes and forms, and we should get a little bit of that concept tonight in our study of verse 19. Number six, these things identify the context of James 1.19 as being relative to trials and tribulations, which are tools for spiritual growth. We identified trials as those circumstances which we encounter that we don't necessarily bring on to ourselves, but we walk into. Um, and tribulations, that's the term we would use for the process of testation, um, those things which are more personal to us and picking at us and our sin nature. Number seven, spiritual growth, as testified by James, occurs when the believer responds to his circumstance. And I should clarify, this is spiritual growth within a trial. Uh, spiritual growth within a trial occurs when the believer responds to him, his circumstance or that trial with the proper biblical problem-solving device. Again, that's within, his frame, within the framework of his relationship and depends upon God to direct him to that device and to implement that device within him. Number eight, the established identification is that trials and tribulations are allowed into the life of the believer as opportunities for the believer to learn, practice, and operate in harmony with God's standard. God's standard is identified as righteousness. And then 
to be identified as righteous is to be identified as being in conformity with the blueprints of God's plan. We have this positionally in Christ, and experientially is the part where we focus here uh, in James chapter 1 about the trials and tribulations. So as we look at the context in which verse 19 is found, it is one then which reminds the believer that the achievement of experiential righteousness is the goal of trials and tribulations. James has identified in verses 2 through 18 various devices designed to assist the believer in navigation of trials towards the end of, de towards the end of developing experiential righteousness. Now, what we mean by that is that in your walk, in this life on earth, we are supposed to be becoming righteous. And we will not ultimately have a righteousness of our own until God transforms us into what we, can, what we call ultimate uh, glorification. That process happens after this earth. But as we walk on earth, we are supposed to become more in line with God's standard of righteousness. So when we say experiential, that's what we're talking about, your experience. In a given moment, in a series of given moments, in a history of given moments. That's what we're talking about. So here we're not dealing with salvation concepts. We're dealing with the fellowship or the walk of the believer in his experiences. And we have identified the context of James 1.19 as one that is designed, or as one that has biblical problem solving devices designed to assist the believer in this growth and development of experiential righteousness. Any questions on those reviewed items? Okay. He, uh, this is kind of an aside, but this is something we need to keep in mind too, is that problem-solving devices, and those identified by James in regards to trials and tribulations, are not designed to eradicate the trial, but rather to allow the believer to rise above the trial spiritually, emotionally, and mentally for the purpose of developing righteousness. In other words, the biblical problem-solving devices are not superheroes which vanquish the trial, but rather divine viewpoint solutions to to human viewpoint operation through life's circumstances. In other words, biblical problem-solving devices aren't supposed to remove the trial from your life. They're supposed to allow you to operate at a level above the trial, going through the trial, but not being affected by the trial in a negative capacity. Biblical problem-solving device, yeah. Yeah, BPSD is biblical problem-solving device. So again, South Dakota. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> I can totally see that. Brother, please sell dishes. <laughs> In verse 19, James identifies that the believer is to use brother, please sell dishes. No, biblical problem-solving devices, but that they are to do so under the umbrella of a specific mindset. This mindset is characterized as being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. If you remember last week's session, we looked at two commands, which we will get into here in our review, um, that were given by James. But again, he says, here are the biblical problem-solving devices that I have taught you. If you're going to use those, you've got to use them in this way. This is the umbrella, overarching theme that you must operate from in order for these to work properly. Last week's study revealed the following principles, which need to be remembered prior to continuing to explore the mindset identified by James in verse 19. One, James identifies three parts to this mindset, which operates in response to God through the Holy Spirit's ministry to the believer during the trial. We used to talk about the, the model of humanity um, from, that was prescribed by God and evidence through Jesus that God was the initiator and man was the responder. That's what we're talking about here when we say that man operates in response to God through the Holy Spirit's ministry to the believer during the trial. So the believer is to operate in response rather than to initiate to God. Last week's study also revealed 
<clears throat> that two commands were given by James, the first being apply what you have learned. We saw this through that word that was in the perfect imperative that said you've learned this, so know it. If you know this, then know it. Um, and then also every man must do three, these three things. And that's about where we left off. We did get a little bit into the, the first part of the mindset, but we will establish that a little bit more firmly tonight. So when it says, Go for it. you know that, why would you want, is that referring back to what he talked about in the first season? It's a reference to what he saying, just taught them. Or is it about what he's about to say? Like, it's going this, boom. That's a good question. It's going back because of the perfect tense, which is a past action. So because of these things, having known, having come to learn this, having acquired this knowledge of this, of these things, know it. So it's not pay attention to what's coming up. And it gets very misleading in the English. But the perfect tense is a past tense, um, not a, a future or present tense um, piece of grammar. So it's referring to something that's happened in the past. In fact, it's saying, this has happened. You have learned this, and the results are that you continue to have this in your possession. So the perfect tense specifically is an, a past action with results that continue on. But it, it's also referring back sequentially. Because you could be saying, you the things that follow you have learned and you should continue them in the past. Um, because it's it's in the past chronologically, but it's also in the past in terms of sequentially in the book. I'm not sure I'm following what you're asking. Okay. Um, if, if you're asking if he's already taught them these commands or this mentality, well, this it, mindset? Is it referring to that you've already learned this, so now do this, is that the things that he's about to say? No, it's referring to what he's taught in verses 2 through 18. That the biblical problem solving devices. Okay. You've learned these things, so pay attention to them. Use them. Um, the and, and again, the, the perfect is that they've already come to know these things, mm -hmm. and it says and then you get that word "but" in their day, which is almost operating as an "and." So it's a "but and," but you learn these things, but also do this. So it separates them, but it links them logically together by saying that if you're going to do these things, you've got to do it in this capacity. That's kind of why it shows it as a new paragraph. Right. And I think the New American Standard just starts with no. But you know my day. Is that New American Standard? Yeah. Yeah, but you. No, this, this you know. Yeah, this you know. And it makes it seem like it's saying, this, what I'm about to say, you already know. Right. But every man do this. But actually, it's perfect tense. And it's a, a difficult thing because of the imperative. I have a subscript that says, know this. Yeah. The, the struggle we had last week was with that word they, they got know this from because it's a perfect imperative. And so it really messes with you a little bit because if it's imperative, it's a command. So it's how do you how are you commanded to do something that you already have done and acquired? And that's the concept is that because you know this, know it. Keep it in the front of your mind. Keep it active. Keep it working. To some degree, yeah. So yeah, it's definitely like without a shadow of doubt, grammar talking about what he's already learned. Bye, right? Hands out. Yeah, <clears throat> the perfect tense locks it in that it's what he's already talked about, rather than what's coming up. Because it's in the past. Yeah, it's a past action. I guess there's only really one future present or future perfect, and it's actually talking about it. Uh, action that's already viewed as having been done and that's the concept of um, us being righteous in God's eyes is that it's considered as having already been done so to God basically it's a past action but to us it hasn't happened yet because we haven't been ultimately glorified
the original question that when I make it clear is, well, I understand it's past, but I didn't know if that meant past in terms of just teaching in James or past in terms of their lives beyond James. So, so this is a letter to real people that are already there. So maybe, yeah. the, you know, some, it, it's past as in as I told you last week, not as I just wrote to you. That, that was my question. Yeah, it's, it's referring specifically to things he just taught them grammatically, not something that they may have picked up in their life. Yeah, he's, he's talking about these things that he's just gotten through. Yeah, it's a good question. Okay, uh, number three, the second command, every man must do these three things, um, is connected to the first command logically. So know what you know in the sense of apply what you've learned is the first command, and that's logically connected to the second command. Know what you know. If you're going to do that, do these three things. In other words, if you're going to do that, every man must do this. Number four, each of these commands is a part of the proper mindset of the believer. And this is, again, the concept of divine viewpoint versus human viewpoint. Divine viewpoint uh, would be either self-righteous operation with these biblical problem-solving devices, in other words, doing them on your own, relying on your own strength and power to do that, rather than God using them, uh, those biblical problem-solving devices in you, or using some sort of human byproduct to get out of them. We talked about um, the resources of the rich. And if you have this trial, the rich are quick to use the resources because they're there, right? And there's nothing wrong with using resources, but again, independent from God, that's a problem. If God's giving you those resources, you can use them definitely. But it's got to be within your relationship with God. So um, what we're identifying is that each of these commands is a part of the proper mindset of the believer who should be operating from divine viewpoint, which hinges from the relationship with God, rather than human viewpoint, which hinges from what we can see, feel, and perceive around us. The human solutions, if you will, to our problems. With these things in mind, the exploration of verse 19 of the believer's response to trials will continue. Keep in mind the goal of this mindset that we're about to study and the utilization of the learned problem-solving devices in verses 2 through 18 is the spiritual maturation of the believer into experiential righteousness. Okay, That's the whole point. It's all about developing spiritual maturity. Part one we looked at a little bit last week. We'll be a little more in-depth tonight. Um, comes from the English phrase, be quick to hear. And it's literally takus, ice ta, akusai, which we looked at last week and we said is immediate into the hearing. Not immediately into the hearing, but immediate into the hearing. Um, takus identifies an immediate response to a stimulant or a trigger. The concept deployed is one that expresses the trial or circumstance encountered is recognized by the believer who then responds immediately with a specific response. Um, this is kind of similar to like the fire alarm drills, if you will. That the fire alarm goes off and in the schools, which probably doesn't work with homeschoolers, but in the schools, everyone is drilled to do this thing. When this happens, you go. And you don't waste you, any time, you don't tear, you don't grab your books, you go. Okay, um, So that's the same, same kind of concept there. The red list and the black list? The teachers, yeah, they have lists. Like right. For they have their own protocols. Yeah. So that's the concept, is that there's been some sort of recognition, hey, this is a trial, okay, go do this. You can move into this mindset or this process of hearing. The immediate response of the believer is to move into a position in which he is able to hear from God concerning the circumstance being faced. This is done in the following manner. The believer moves in a position of hearing by one, honestly evaluating his experiential position with God. Again, we're talking about a believer. I almost just changed it to an individual, but I wanted to be consistent because we're using believer pretty much um, consistently throughout tonight. 
But if you are not a believer, your first step here would be to accept Christ as your Savior, which then puts you into positional righteousness so that you can get into experiential righteousness with God. So the believer, having accepted Christ as their Savior, starts at this step of honestly evaluating his experiential position with God. Is he in fellowship? Is he out of fellowship? Is he independent? Is he out of fellowship? Is he, is he carnal or is he spiritual? If unconfessed sin is in the believer's life, the believer is experientially out of fellowship with God. If no unconfessed sin is in the believer's life, including mindsets and independent operation as well, the believer is in fellowship with God and can move on to step two. If that first one there, the unconfessed sin exists, then the out of fellowship believer has to take the following course of action in order to get to the place where he's able to hear from God. And that is, one, identify known sin in his life, which has been unconfessed to God. B, volitionally agree that the unconfessed sin is inherently worthless as dictated by God's standard of righteousness. C, through the priesthood granted him by his status as a child of God, communicate agreement to God regarding the unconfessed sin, that it is sin, basically agreeing with that. And this is confession as the confession process as identified in 1 John 1, 9, which identifies and comes from a repentant heart. Um, some will teach that 1 John 1, 9 means nearly to name your sin. Well, you can name your sin and not repent from it. And the concept of homologeo is one that says you speak the same in the sense of I am in agreement with this. And in fact, homo means uh, of the same and speak uh, is from legeo. So you're talking about specifically agreeing with God on what he says is sin. And not just merely the identification of it, but yes, this is sin, and I'm going to agree with you on that. That has to come from the heart, not just lip service. This process is known as the process of, of confession, and is available to the believer who has been made positionally righteous. And the seed of Christ abiding in him allows him to come back into fellowship, having confessed his sin. Question? Yeah, so on that idea, and we talked about in the past, do you think of it as in fellowship and out of fellowship as in a light is either on or off? Yes. Or do you think of it as inner fellowship, whether it's kind of turned brighter? There's no dimmer switch. It's on or off. You're in fellowship or you're out. The the designation by Scripture is that you're either carnal or or spiritual, that you're either fleshly or spiritual, that you're operating according to the spirit or according to the flesh. There's no percentage of it. You can go back and forth. It's an on-off. Yeah, you go on and off. Sin puts you off. Confession puts you back on. In fact, when I deal with teaching on Romans 12, 1 and 2, about do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, I actually have an on-off switch that is the middle part of the chart that I've laid out that shows the process of being out of fellowship and in fellowship or being conforming to the world and um, being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, the question comes usually where if you're in fellowship and you don't know something is sin and you do it, does that make you out of fellowship? Well, the concept is yes, because the Holy Spirit, if he's directing you and guiding you, won't cause you to do sin. You may know some, not know something is sin and stumble into it, be tricked into it, be deceived into it, but either way, if you're following the Holy Spirit and depend upon him, he's not going to lead you into sin. So what that would come down to is independent operation, which itself is sin. So that's the new yeah. yeah. So the, the Bible makes provision for known sin and unknown sin. And both are sin. And God holds us responsible for both positionally and experientially. If we're saved and positionally, we don't have to worry about our, our place in, um, in heaven or with God for eternity. But experientially, even 
unknown sin or sin that we do that's unknown to us. Like say we didn't know that the Bible teaches to obey the laws of the land and we go speeding. Well, we're sinning because we're not obeying the laws of the land, which is in agreement with God's word, right? What we do when we come to the recognition of that makes a difference too. But we've already sinned because we've already trespassed that law, which violates God's law, which now is sin. So partly when we're growing spiritually, there's a process that's involved, right? We can't be in 100% agreement with 100% of God's standards because we may not know 100% of them. In fact, if we did, we might have a different story because we might not be on earth. But if we are submitted to God and are controlled by the Holy Spirit, then we won't have to worry about whether we know this is sin or not. In fact, the, the question in our own head when we're asking, is this sin or is this not, shows one that we're independent of God. So as we look at spiritual maturity, when we say being in fellowship, it doesn't mean that you know all the standards of God and are thus in agreement with Him. It means that you're operating according to that model of humanity properly, where God's initiating and you're responding, and you've um, come into the fellowship relationship, allowing the Holy Spirit to saturate you to the point of control. So that when you sin, you confess and get back in fellowship, and then the process starts again. Any questions on that? So if we have to think about whether something is sin or not, it means we're not in fellowship. Yeah. Like you said. Uh -huh. So when it says test everything and carefully prove what is good, it means if you're testing everything carefully, you can't. Usually when we're looking at something going, I wonder if that's sinful or not. In the sense of we're trying we're going to do it or thinking about doing it. Usually if we are asking whether it's sinful or not, it most likely is. And I guess that's more what I was getting at. And most likely, at that point, you're out of fellowship because you're already independently thinking. If you're going, God, is that sin? That's a different story. But if you're thinking, I wonder if that's sin or not. Most likely, just based on experience and the flesh, most likely you're already out of fellowship and you're tinkering with concepts that you shouldn't be playing with. Oh, I see what you're saying. And not across the board if you're trying to decide something is sin or not. It's if you're playing with sin. Yeah. That's what's sin. Well, and even, yeah, definitely. Now, the, the, the speeding thing, because that's, a lot of people have an issue with that, of saying, well, speeding isn't sinful. Okay, well, whatever you want to do there, you know. Now, I'm not going to be legalistic about it per se. But if the Bible says this, and you want to do this, and it's causing you to not agree with what the Bible says, then you've obviously got an independent, almost rebellion, whether it's passive or active. Whether you're actively, I don't care what it says, or whether you're saying, well, I don't see how that could be an issue. It's more of a passive attitude towards it. So <clears throat> what I'm getting at, I guess, is that we oftentimes will try and evaluate what we may or may not want to do under the scope of is this sin or is this not sin to justify it. Yeah, and it's the same concept. You're, you hit on the head. Is it? Am I going to get in trouble for this? Is this going to take me out of fellowship? Is this going to take me a course where God doesn't want me to go? And those aren't bad questions to ask, but usually when you're there, you're already responding to yourself, not to God. And that's the problem. As the model of humanity says, God initiates your response. I see. So your, your mindset is one of already independence. I see. You're not saying that to decide if that is something right. right. Right, in the sense, in the sense of evaluating it, no. I was saying, yeah, that's that's sinful. That's not sinful. Right. Anytime you're doing something on your own, and you're responding to yourself, you're not responding to God, and that's the the issue. Yeah. 
if you're trying to decide if something is hidden or not in the context of God. Well, you may still be doing it independent of God. <laughs> it all comes. It all comes down to your personal relationship and whether you're initiating it or responding to Him. Because any time in Scripture that the Bible talks about us relating to God, male or female, He talks about it being a feminine thing, which is based on response or a responder. We're designed to be responders to God. And Adam, even though he was a male in the garden, was responding to God. God said, "Do these things," and he did them. God didn't say, hey, here's the garden, take care of it. And I'm saying, hey, I want to go put an arbor over here. I want to do this kind of thing. That's not the concept. This is one where, as believers, as humans, we are supposed to be in response to God 100% moment by moment. When we choose to try and put an arbor up on our own, where God hasn't told us to go put an arbor up, we may have that issue of independent operation, which is sin. So when I said that if you're asking whether it's sin or not sin, you're probably out of fellowship, or I think I said you are out of fellowship. Most of the time it's the case because you're operating independent. You're trying to figure out whether you can get away with it, depending on your sin nature, obviously, uh, by justifying whether or not it's right or wrong in your mind. I might be able to get away with this, but I'm not sure that it's sinful. I see. Thank you. Yeah. It's a better way of saying that, I guess. So usually you ask that question because we're out of fellowship, seeking an answer on our own. Same goes for asking if we're in fellowship or out of fellowship. God, am I in fellowship or out of fellowship? Well, if you have to ask, you most likely aren't in fellowship. Same kind of concept. The believer moves in a position of hearing by submitting, number two, submitting a circumstance to the throne room of God for evaluation. Again, the concept is that a trial has been encountered. The believer immediately moves into a, a position of hearing. Um, and again, hearing we'll get to. But let me remind you last week, we looked at it as um, to hear something and respond positively to it. Um, the actual examples given in dictionaries is of a, a porter, a door porter, where the, someone knocks on a door and the doorman comes, opens the door, he responds positively to it rather than running away, which would be a negative response, or have positive connotations depending upon whether it's an alarm salesman at the door. All right, Depending on the situation there. But the concept again is that you're hearing something and responding positively to it or affirmatively to it. He was just after our M&M's. <laughs> he may feel invited in later when he's not welcome. <laughs> it's like the guy coming around, trying to spray your dad's car with stuff. Sprayed your shoe with stuff, I think, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was we are about ready to invite him to a hot dog party. We were having get him out one night and the salesman came around with some cleaning stuff. So. I'm sure it's shiny too. But, all right. So. Shoot, toenail polish. <laughs> so, so the believer moves into a position by hearing, or of hearing by first identifying spiritually whether he's in fellowship or out of fellowship. Uh, if he's out of fellowship, confessing his sin and getting back in fellowship. If he's in fellowship, he then moves to the second step of submitting the circumstance, that trial, to the throne of God for evaluation. Here, he's seeking wisdom to apply. He's seeking wisdom to apply to that circumstance through prayer and Bible study. Um, and he's resting in faith that the Holy Spirit will direct the necessary application to the believer at the proper time. What we're not saying here is that the believer goes to God and says, God, what do I want to do here? And then just sits there. Okay, there's, there's, that's, that's not really biblical, if you will. Um, we are supposed to ask. We are supposed to wait. We are supposed to let God give it to us at the proper time. But there's natural course of action that the Holy Spirit teaches us through 
the Bible study is such as the one that we are at right now, that when we're not thinking, or if we're just, if we've asked God, hey, how do I get out of this situation? How do I go through the situation? What are you trying to do here? What is the pro- purpose of this? And we let him take care of it. We'll be going through Bible study. The Holy Spirit will bring to us some sort of passage, some sort of teaching, something that we've already learned. We'll learn something new, and it will say this is the application to your, your circumstance here. This is how you do this here. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's not our job to figure that out. The believer also moves into a position of hearing by this third step, continuing to carry out, and this is what we were alluding to, continuing to carry out that which has already been assigned to him by God while operating in fellowship, saturated to the point of control by the Holy Spirit, as Ephesians 5.18 dictates. This allows the believer to, one, understand, human, or understand divine viewpoint. It also allows the Holy Spirit unhindered ministry to the believer's spirit, allowing him to teach and exhort and guide and give that wisdom. And this also allows the believer to prepare and be prepared for the proper action regarding the circumstance he has encountered. So these three steps are the ones to employ for a believer in this first part of the mindset. Any other questions on that? So the first part of the mindset is quick to hear and it's immediate into the hearing. Identifying that the believer goes immediately into this mode of hearing. Now, Aista Akusai is that into the hearing part and establishes the movement into a position of hearing is done as a matter of purpose. We get this from the active infinitive form, active infinitive form of Akuo, which is what Akusai is. Akuo again means to hear and respond positively toward what was heard, such as a door being knocked on and going and answering it. You're affirmatively or positively responding to it. By using the infinitive form, which is becoming infinitive form, by using the infinitive form, James expresses a purpose behind Akusai. When the infinitive is used, it's identifying something as being accomplished as a matter of purpose, or being a purposeful thing. In fact, the phrase ta," those two words put with an infinitive, really emphasize this concept of this is your purpose. You are being quick. You are immediately responding to go to this route as a matter of purpose, um, rather than I just lucked out and ended up here. It's no, this is where I'm going. There's a reason for it. There's a purpose behind it. Part one of the mindset, quick to hear. Again, as they understand that the believer is to move in a position of hearing as a matter of purpose. Your purpose to going to this position of hearing is so that you can hear and then positively respond. You put yourself in the proper uh, orientation towards that and wait until you hear what he says and then you positively respond to it. That's your purpose. I'm going here to see what God says so that I can then do it. The purpose, again, being to hear and respond to God's direction regarding the circumstance and thus follow the proper procedure towards experiential righteousness and spiritual maturation. Remember, the context, again, is towards spiritual growth through the trial. That's what God's trying to accomplish through them. Satan come here trying to accomplish something different. Akusai is active in voice also, which identifies that the believer is the one who is supposed to perform the action of hearing and responding positively. God won't do it for him nor can anyone else. The believer must do this himself as the proper response in his relationship with God. Okay, this happens. And we make the statements that God, that we're not supposed to initiate anything on our own, right? Well, in cases like these with the active voice, we're responding to God saying, hey, it's your job to take care of this. That's your, your role, your responsibility. You come, you put yourself in the quick to hear concept. That's what, God. That's what God's saying to us. Therefore, our response is to do it. Whether that's initiating the action to do it when we find out we're not, that's part of that. We're still responding to him, ultimately. It's responding to his command, but he's put it on our shoulders. He doesn't participate with us in it. He doesn't do it for us, which would be the passive voice. Um, no one else does. He says, this is your job. Your job is to perform the action, 
to get into this hearing as a matter of purpose. Get to the point where you are ready to hear and respond positively as a matter of purpose. That's on you. You do that and I will do this. That's a relationship structure of, that fits within the model of humanity where God initiates and we respond. He has initiated the command to do this. We respond by doing so. The first part of the mindset then is the believer establishing himself into a position where he is able to hear and respond positively to God's direction regarding the circumstance. If there is sin in the believer's life, he is not in a position to hear from God. He is not in a position to be ministered to by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit changes from teaching and encouraging when the believer is out of fellowship to exhorting and convicting. That process then puts the believer back in fellowship, hopefully, if the believer responds to that. And then the believer is able to once again hear the spiritual concept of God's word. So part of this is the believer being in fellowship with God, spiritually dependent upon God, and operating from that, not independent of God. The other is once he has heard, he has to make the choice to positively respond to what has been instructed of him, to put into action that which has been told to him. God may choose to speak to the believer in a variety of ways, the primary way is being through His Word and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What I mean by the ministry of the Holy Spirit is that as you are dependent upon God and your relationship to Him, He is initiating, you're responding. The Holy Spirit either brings to mind through recall what you've already learned or brings about something that you now see in a different light that applies to your circumstance. This is what will happen if you're dependent upon God in fellowship with Him. But He's taught you also in His Word. And as you study it and develop and understand God's Word, that's part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, bringing that recalled information back to the forefront of your mind, saying, hey, remember when you studied this, this applies here. Remember when this was the case, this applies here. That's part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We're not talking here about God choosing to speak a new revelation to you, which he very well might do through the Holy Spirit. But the normal ways that God is, aligned, or God is designed for you to hear and understand from him is the study of his word in fellowship under the ministry of the Holy Spirit. When we learn and grow in truth, in his word, that is then able to be recalled for us later as we go through these various trials and tribulations. So however God chooses to direct the believer is up to him. The believer being in a ready position to receive such direction is up to the believer. Put yourself into that readiness to hear and then respond positively to it, and God says he will take care of the rest. Part two of the mindset is slow to speak coming from Bradus Ice Talalesi, and literally that means slow into the speaking. The believer is to be in a ready position to hear and respond positively to God's directive. However, in doing so, he moves himself into a position of being slow to speak. These are pretty much direct opposites. Slow is from the word Bradus. It is an adjective describing the manner in which the believer is to act. Bradus is the direct opposite of Takus, and as such identifies a slow reaction to a stimulant or trigger. So rather than an immediate response that puts you from this place to this place, this is a slow reaction. But more than that, there's another component which explains, its, which explains the slowness of Bradus. That other component is described well by the English word dilatory, which I had to look up when I got to that word in the Greek dictionaries. And it means, which dilatory actually describes something as deliberate or unhurried. And you can kind of sense the concept of a deliberated action is, well, I don't know if I'm going to do this, I'm going to think it through. But that's the concept, is that it's a, a dilatory concept is one which has been thought through and approached not in, not in a reaction type of way, but in a responsive type of way. 
this is the situation. How are we going to deal with this? I'm going to go through this process, this process, this process, consider these things, and then I'm going to act upon it. Not go for it, just act upon it. So as we look at this slow to speak concept, we're going to see this, this concept of thinking things through come out really uh, a lot with both Laleci speaking and Braduce. So thinking of Braduce as something which is deliberate or unhurried, um, unhastened or unhastily, not hastily, however you want to term that, would be a, a decent fit there too. Um, this is an adequate understanding of Braduce, which incorporates a primary disposition or mental attitude towards processing or thinking through something rather than just reacting to it. For example, oftentimes married folks encourage non-married folks to be slow looking for and moving towards marriage. What they are identifying is that the non-married folks need to use a thought-out approach which ignores the emotional, hormonal, or youthful influences, which oftentimes direct non-married folks into incomplete relationship settings. This is designed more as an example for teenagers, but the concept applies. I couldn't think of a better example. Uh, I didn't really focus that hard on it. I wasn't as broad as I maybe needed to have been, but the concept here is that rather than jumping into something, think about it. What's the purpose of this? What's the plan? Where's this going? Where do I see this happening? How are we going to do these things? That's the same concept as broad dues. Not being quick to jump into something, but being slow processing through it. This processing part is a huge part to this. It's you're not slow just to sit there and not do anything. It's not an apathy. You're slow so that you can process this. You're taking your time through it. That's the concept being employed. <clears throat> Braduce identifies a slowness about a specific action because of a primary disposition, which again is a mental attitude, towards thinking through something as opposed to rushing into it. Thus, this, sec this second mindset is established as being one which is marked by a thoughtful approach as opposed to an impulsive reaction. Now, I said this second mindset. This is a second part of the first mindset. So just erase that. Yes? So, as far as already being quick to hear, and we see what God tells us to do, we should be answering that question in the next few slides. If if we don't, raise your hand again because it is a good question. Yeah. And the question again was if we're supposed to be quick to hear, why would we be slow to analyzing what we've heard? Well, that's not necessarily what we're talking about. So we should answer that in a few, few slides here. If we don't, raise your hand and we'll, we'll spend some time on it. Okay, the believer is commanded to have this primary disposition to a thought-out approach in regards to speaking. Again, lelesai is what, that we, what we get that word speaking from. And it's the same phraseology used by James to identify not the action of speaking, but the realm of speaking. Now, this is all new. I said again, we, I had a slide that was supposed to have this information in it for hearing. But what we've talked about here is that we've got, see that construction, ista lelesai, those last three words in the Greek, into the speaking. That construction, that same exact construction, was used for hearing, into the hearing. By doing that, James is identifying a location or a realm, the realm of hearing and being able to positively respond, the realm of speaking. So he's talking not about so much what you hear or what you speak, but about what, what that realm is. You're in a realm, you're in a mindset of being able to hear. What does that look like? Well, you've got your ears open and you're ready to act. Um, you're in a realm of speaking. You're ready to do what you need to do. You're ready to speak. So we're talking about a realm or a location of hearing or a location of speaking. And that's what 
that little phrase there says, where it says, again, the same phraseology, the same construction of words, aista, um, akusai, and lelesai, is used by James to identify not the action so much of speaking or of hearing, but the realm of speaking, in speaking. Rather than speaking, he said this. No, in speaking, he did this. It shows the realm concept a little more. Such was the case for hearing as well. By identifying the realm of speaking, James makes the situation more generic, but yet within certain boundaries. He recognizes the believer is to act, but he commands the believer to be thought out in doing so rather than impulsive in doing so. The believer is to therefore move into the realm of speaking with a thought-out approach and not out of impulsive reaction. So by speaking, does he mean literally like what you say, or is he just speaking in action? That's the million-dollar question. Yeah, hopefully we get five. Well, I'm not giving him a million dollars. We should be splitting it, all of us. You're gonna give us a million dollars. I don't have a million dollars to give you. Sorry. <laughs> that, that's the million dollar question, and like I'm told, Noel, we'll kind of answer that in the next few slides. If we don't answer it enough, raise your hand again. We'll ask, we'll let it pull it out again. We'll, we'll we'll deal with it a little more commentarily than what we're doing here. Um, by identifying the realm of speaking, James makes the situation more generic, but yet within certain boundaries. He recognizes the believers to act, um, and the believer is to therefore move into the realm of speaking with a thought-out approach and not out of impulsive reaction. The word speaking has been translated from the Greek word lalese, which is an aorist active infinitive, as was akousai, that's luse and akousai, from the first part of the mindset. James uses the same exact construction in the second part of the mindset as he did in the first. Again, aista lalesai and aista akusai. Lalesai is from the root word laleo, which is one of two primary words used in identifying an individual speaking. Uh, the difference between the two is sharp in contrast. James could have used either of these two words, lego, which means to speak or to say, and laleo, which means to speak or to utter. The difference between the two is largely in that one is a thought-out logical speaking, while the other is a reactionary expression of illogical chattel. Another word I had to look up. Okay, we're going to explain the next slide. The word James chose is the latter. So I'm not pulling these out of my own head for definitions of these words. This is stuff you learn from the dictionaries. All right? So testation. <laughs> testation we made up, and we clarified that one. Because <laughs> temptation wasn't in there. Anyway. James could have used either of these two words. Again, we crossed out lego because that's not the word he chose to use. He used laleo, um, and it's more modernly used to identify the incomprehensible utterances, that was all me, of babies. Eh. It's nice that we have a baby here right now because this is just great. But it's the goo-goos and the gagas, which make no sense to someone who has a linguistic framework that they've been taught and learned and they operate from. And idiomatically, it's applied to adults to identify senseless or baseless talking, one which isn't founded in logic or in thinking things through, but out of impulsive uh, eruptions of just, well, you go do that. You, I hate you too, that kind of thing, you know? Like whatever happens if you talk to people going for you think about thinking. Whatever happens in what? Like, you don't think about what you're going to say. Like, on a very practical, literal level, you don't think about what you're going to say. Good chance it's going to be Yep, I had a phone call. Experience. I had a phone call like that three weeks ago, and I won't get the details because I'm not sure I can. Um, I don't know if I can remember them. It was it was about a choice I had made to do something, and um, one of the one of the problems I was having was was that the person called right when I was waking up. In fact, the phone woke me up, and so I wasn't quite coherent. 
And a five-minute conversation turned into about a 10 to 15-minute conversation, and one in which I really need to call them back and talk to them about and say, hey, this is actually what I meant to say because I don't think I got that point across. Yeah. Um, that's the same concept. Is that those moments where you're talking and you're like, not your brain's not working or something, or like you said, you're, you haven't thought it through and you're just talking. Those are the moments we're talking about. That's the chattel. That's this senseless, no, not chatter, chattel. That's this senseless, baseless talking that erupts out of impulsive reaction. When I'm working with my patients sometimes, I'm thinking about what they're doing on Sunday, right? So they'll be working on something and I'm like, wow, this is really hard. I'm not able to get this. And then I say, good, okay. And then yeah. I, I just said, it's good that your head hurts or like that your eyes don't work. Or, stop it, stop it. <laughs> I do that today to help myself. Yeah, oftentimes, like you said, it's when we're distracted. Or sometimes it's just when we flat out don't care what they're saying, which you see all the time after church and church services. People will be standing there talking with someone, so they'll be talking a long time, and the other person will just go, uh huh, yep, uh huh, yep, uh huh. Yep, uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I was waiting for it. Um, so it's, it's either distraction or we don't care, which really means we don't love. But anyway, that's a whole different ballgame. Not the distraction part. Not the distraction part. That's not what I'm saying. Distraction distracts. <laughs> Legalistic is the way to be. Anyway, I was speaking more about the not caring part, not the distraction part. I don't know. Anyway, sometimes, sometimes not caring and not listening is the best way to love people. Because otherwise, it's going to incite worse emotions towards them if you pay attention. <laughs> it's true. I'm not sure. Jamin Legos the truth. <laughs> So we will continue to lay Lego, hopefully not, on this topic. Oh, Lego. Okay. Yeah, Lego. Lego means the speaker say. It's actually the logical, like, thought out, planned out. Like, when I went through this study, I studied, plotted it down, and tried to systematically follow it in some sort of logical procedure. So that's the concept of Lego, yeah. is I'm speaking this in a thought out, This is, I have a reason for what I'm saying, I'm doing this for these reasons, rather than, oh, I don't really care, let's just say something. Okay. Now, the secondary difference between laleo as opposed to lego focuses merely on the concept of an expression being made, rather than the content or meaning of that expression. So, lego, if, you, if you're using lego, you're going to use it when it's, I spoke this to him, rather than, I'm speaking. And the concept is that you're making an expression. You're, it doesn't matter what you're saying, you're saying something, you're speaking something. So, the difference is between what you say and the meaning of it, versus the fact that you're just speaking something, you're uttering, you're chattling. I don't even know if that's a real word, but chattel's a word, so chattling works for me. <laughs> yes. Is that a dictionary? Chattel. Well, okay. The fact that you type it on the screen. <laughs> that is not a dictionary. <laughs> I can make up whatever I want. It's on the screen. I just believe it. It's great. It's on the internet. <laughs> yeah. Wikipedia had it. Anyway. What did, you, what did Wikipedia say? I don't know, I didn't look it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> I looked it up in Webster from my Bible software, not from the internet. Which gets it from the internet. But oh well. Anyway, all right, so the, the secondary difference here, besides just the uttering content, is that there's an expression being made. Okay, um, now, expression in the sense of like uh, expression of speech, but also an expression <coughs> in the sense of you're expressing what's inside of you outwardly. If both those concepts are employed with Laleo. Uh, now, because of that, because it's just a generic expression, it is more generic in its usage. Identifying an individual has made some sort of expression rather than it has spoken a given message or specific message. So, Lego 
With Lego, you speak rhema, or a zoomed-in message, uh, or the words of the message. You speak something specifically thought out and planned. With Aleo, you're just uttering and chattering on. Okay. Believing James is a word choice to be divinely inspired as a part of the divine inspiration of Scripture, the logical conclusion is that James is identifying that the believer is to move into a position of being slow to express himself in a reactionary manner. Now, this is still in the concept of a speech. I'm not saying it means to express yourself. I'm using the meaning of that to kind of assist us in our understanding. Look at verse 34 in Matthew chapter 12. Um, this same root word here that we've got, uh, loleo, is used by Jesus when he rebukes the Pharisees. Uh, and the whole story starts in verse 22, if you want to read that when you go home or if you want to look at it now. But Jesus in verse 34 says, You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, laleo what is good? For the mouth laleos out of the, that which fills the heart. Now, he didn't use lego here. Because what he's, reckon, what he's getting at one is that from our heart, is not just what comes out of us, but oftentimes we don't think about what we're, what we're doing because our hearts are normal standards, our natural, normal process of operation. So it's that kind of expression of, this is what happens, so I do this. When someone pulls me up or cuts me off on the road, I get angry. That's my normal expression. Not mine. I was using it hypothetically. I'm actually pretty docile, unless I'm honoring. Then I shoot them with my emergency brake. <laughs> Something again I learned from my father. <laughs> Anyway, the concept is that it's from the mouth that the expression of your heart comes out or that you express your norms and standards through your mouth in this speaking concept. So we're not talking about so much what you say or that you're saying something specific, but that you're expressing something through your speech, through your mouth. Now we also know in other passages that uh, from out of the mouth, the man is defiled. For what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. And, and I almost wanted to put something in here about this being symbolic of the process that is being uh, discussed there about the heart is where your norms and standards are and what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. Um, but And the mouth being your actions, uh, the portal for your actions. But I didn't want to take it there necessarily because I'm not sure you can be dogmatic on that application of it here. But there definitely seems to be some imagery to that direction uh, in harmony with that other passage as well. But laleo, in this sense, too, where Jesus is using it, is that same expressionary concept. Is that you're expressing your opinion, or expressing your situation, or expressing yourself in this way. Jesus' identification is that the Pharisees' continual attempts to trip him up, and his disciples is from an evil heart which directs their actions as expressed through their spoken challenges to him. And that's why I believe he used laleo, is because they're challenging him. They're saying, well, you cast out these demons by the powers of Satan. And that's a spoken challenge that they're giving to him, and it's expressing their heart. It's expressing, it's an action that expresses their heart through their spoken words to him. So while expressed through speaking, Jesus identifies the Pharisees' actions are evil because their speaking comes from an evil heart. Here and elsewhere in Scripture, Laleo is used to identify the actions of the heart expressed through speaking. As such, Laleo takes on the concept of expressing oneself through speaking. In most instances, this is viewed with negative connotations, as in the case of an individual improperly speaking to an authoritative figure. You're not the boss of me. Well, actually, I am. Or God would answer, I'm sure. Oh, just kidding. Or, okay, fine. Try not having me as the boss of you for a while. And I'll change your mind. You really want to. Okay. 
Regardless of the message or specific action revealed through the reactionary speaking of the individual or reactionary uh, action of the individual, the focus of James is that the individual has spoken from reaction without having properly, properly thought through and producing the proper response in his speech. In the context of trials, James employs laleo to command the believer to be slow in terms of reactionarily expressing, or slow in terms of reactionary expression regarding the situation. So in speech, which is the result of your heart, don't just react to the situation. Okay, don't just go off. Now, laleisai again, which is where laleo is, which comes from laleo, identifies that the second part of the believer's mindset should be one that is deliberate about its expression. The believer is not to speak from reaction without first considering the proper response. This is applied to trials in a number of ways. Number one, in response to the individual's opinion concerning the trial, whether to himself or to someone else. The believer isn't to solidify baseless thoughts about the trial through his speech. When we say something, it solidifies it in us. A lot of people are actually afraid to say out loud what they do sinful-wise, and it's an exercise that I, I don't do in a group, but if a one-on-one -on -one counseling situation comes on, and I say, go home and say it out loud because they won't tell me what's going on in their life and their sin. They just don't want to say it because it's too, too bad to bear. They don't want to face the fact that they're actually doing it. When we say it or we speak it, it actually firms it up in us that this is more reality. It's, it can't just hide in the recesses of our mind. It becomes a little more reality for us. Um, so whether we're saying it out loud about, well, this situation is stupid because of this or whatever, that's not our, our response. We're supposed to be slow into doing those things, partly because it does solidify it um, through that baseless thought and, and kind of just creates a, a bad attitude for, for us from that. Number two, in response to individuals um, who may be the stimulant or trigger of a trial, we shouldn't use it towards those people who are coming time and time again and frustrating us and are becoming, because of their actions, a trial to us. <laughs> okay, oftentimes, like the example of a person getting cut off driving on the road, that person who was who cut them off becomes the stimulant or the trigger that is actually the vehicle for the trial. Vehicle may be a bad term to use there since we're talking about cars, but becomes the instrument of the trial. Or perfect one of them. <laughs> anyway, so we, we should be slow, and believers should be slow in response to those who are causing the trial if it's an individual. Um, now, again, we started tonight and we said that trials may not be something that's actually difficult for us to handle. Right now, this is a trial, okay? We are constantly being, we're constantly, how do I term that? We're constantly on the trial block. We're constantly being tested. We're constantly being uh, probed and prodded to see how we're gonna respond to things. Um, in fact, our life, again, is that testimony of God's glory, and we're doing that to, we're testifying of God's glory to humans and to Satan and company. So in that process, we are actually showing them who God is through our behavior. Now, if we are in a situation, and this happens to me often, in fact, I'll use an elder board situation. Um, elders meet once a month at Wiley Union Church, pretty much, uh, sometimes twice a month if we have extra cookies around. And so when we get there, we have an agenda with things that we're supposed to talk about. And sometimes there are things that individuals bring to us to say, what can we do about this? Well, as an elder board, each of the individuals on that board have made it a point to be slow to speak on certain matters because we want to not just jump into, oh, let's just do this. We want to make sure that we're processing it, that we're being thoroughly investigative of it. But realistically, what you're doing in that time period and what each of the elders is doing is that they're waiting for God 
to give them that direction that seems good to the Holy Spirit at the time. Okay, now, we sometimes jump ahead of ourselves, and all of us, united together, make a decision. And then we reverse that decision. It just happened with Children's Church, okay? We, we're going to give Children's Church workers uh, the summer off. They've been working hard. They haven't had a break. Problem is, we didn't think about the momentum we'd had built up in Children's Church. It's been building and growing. So if we kill it for two months, it kills the momentum for two months. When that was brought to our attention from an external source, we then just came back together and said, hey, we didn't quite think about this. What do you guys think about this? And I'm like, okay, let's do this. And so we reversed the decision. And we may have moved too hastily because we hadn't considered all the different facets to canceling Children's Church. Now, so in response to individuals, it may be that this individual is frustrating or this individual just has something that needs to be have, needs to have a decision made about. And in doing that, in processing that, it's, it needs to what? Decided. Needs to be decided. Yeah, because I don't like any prepositions. The decision me- needs to be made. Not something you should end sentences with. Right, precisely. <laughs> You're so right in that. Anyway, um, <laughs> the concept is that whether it's difficult for you, frustrating for you or not, You're supposed to approach it with this mindset of being quick to hear and slow to speak in the sense of there's a decision to be made here. There's something that needs to be done here. I'm quick to hear what God has to say about this, and I'm not going to rush into speaking on it until I have the proper information. Does that answer your question? I think so. Do you want more clarification on it or anything else in depth? I can probably chattel on it a little bit. Anyone? I'm praying to God, God's going to be Let me process this because God has already given us a framework for processing. If he's set up and we've learned a biblical problem solving device, like you're saying that framework of when this situation happens, God says we deal with it in these ways. The only thing we need to check on that is that we're responding to him and in fellowship. And let it go through the filter, yeah. We, we're not saying that you have to sit there, hold on, God's got to give me an answer here. And pray and pray, and I have got an answer. It's not like we're getting a direct revelation from God. But in our fellowship relationship, we should get some direction from the Holy Spirit, in and out at the moment. Or should have already gotten it. Yeah, or should have, or have already. And it's yes, in this situation, we have these protocols to use. We go through this filtering device, which problem-solving device is a filtering device. It's what we filter these different circumstances through. So when I say that we are to be quick to hear what God has to say about the situation and slow to just act on something, I'm not saying wait till He gives you an audible lightning bolt, lightning bolt something, yeah, that kind of thing. I'm saying He. The, then the, we, this goes back to our uh, slide about the normal process by which He gives us this information is through His Word and has given it. So we need to study it so that we know it. And also that when we know it, what we know has been is allowed for recall by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can recall that to us to put it in the proper time frame as well. As well as direct us to certain places in Scripture 
or through another person to give us the proper information so that he can say this is what you're supposed to do here. Um, so yeah, filtration systems like the biblical problem solving devices in verses 2 through 18 is part of that. But that first step of the spiritual operation that you have to be in fellowship before those things are employed is the critical part. When we try to employ biblical problem solving devices being out of fellowship, we get into issues because we're operating from human viewpoint and we're trying to use a divine viewpoint solution from human viewpoint and it just doesn't work. So the first step, even with the filtration systems, is dependence upon God, which should be a given anyway as we operate through our whole life that way, supposedly. Alright. The third application of Lelesai to trials is in response to the believer's opinion regarding the relationship of his, his actions to the trial, uh, for whether they are preconceived problem-solving devices, escape routes, reality of the trial, etc. Uh, what we're getting at is what, what Emily just brought up, is that we have filtration systems, we have biblical problem-solving devices, but we're not to be quick to jump into those things either. And the concept there is that we're supposed to be in that position of hearing from God so that in case that filtration system needs to have a little tweak at the end, or in case God's trying to do something special there, that we are able to hear Him as we slowly go through the process that He's already prescribed. So preconceived problems on devices, um, whether they're pre-taught and pre-learned, or whether they're just, I think this is how God wants me to do this here, and I've never really studied it or anything like that, just preconceived. Um, whether it's the believer trying to get out of the trial, um, whether it's not even a trial, maybe it's discipline. Discipline and trial are two different things. We do have to deal with them in two different ways. So the believer's opinion, whether he believes that the trial is a preconce- uh, is a, a discipline or a trial, or whether he needs to use a specific problem on device, or whether he needs to escape from that, where the believer is not supposed to operate and use the lay in those terms. Believer again is first to God, second to what he said. Does that make sense? That felt a little more like chattel than much anything else. <clears throat> so the lay side is to be used in response to the believer's opinion regarding the relation of his actions. Don't be quick to assume this is the filter of problem solving device. Don't be quick to say, oh, I got this, God. I, I'm going to take care of this here. Don't be quick to say, I'm going to get out of this trial by just throwing money at it or doing this or whatever. Um, or don't be quick to say, this isn't a trial, this is discipline. And we have a knee-jerk reaction in many cases to trial to think that God is disciplining us. And this is a punish. Well, God's discipline is not punishment. God's discipline is training. It disciplines us in the sense of a runner disciplining his body to be able to go to a certain extent um, in the race so that he is able then, when he needs to, to go that distance. Discipline is using faith to depend upon God's, what God's given us in our relationship to him through these things so that we learn and can grow spiritually. God's discipline is not punishment. We view trials oftentimes, and many people fall into this trap of thinking that, well, God's brought this into my life to punish me, to discipline me. Well, God doesn't discipline like our earthly fathers do. He disciplines in a different manner. So part two of the mindset, again, slow to speak. This second part of the mindset is one that doesn't rush into an expression concerning the trial, whether it's speaking verbally or speaking through action. It waits, thinks things through, thoroughly evaluates the per- proper response, and then enacts that response properly. Did we answer the million-dollar question satisfactory? Um, sort of, huh? Yeah, whether it's just speech, literal speech, or, or speaking in terms of like... It sounds like it is generally... Because that word, right? It's, it does sound like... It's, it's first speech, yes. And so it's not... 
while you, there are parallels to action and behavior, it does generally point pretty much towards actual literal. But again, we're looking at the words. realm of speaking, not the actual speaking. But is it the word? Yeah. What's that? You, you could have had a lot of different things. And that's why I said I didn't want to take it into that symbolism of the mouth, from the mouth is where our actions come from, which is true. The mouth is representative of our actions, but so are our feet. That's representative of where we take ourselves in our actions. So, yeah, it is saying specific speaking. But again, the focus is on the realm of speaking. And this is a type of speaking which is generic based upon the heart of man. Not the, I'm going to say this kind of speaking. So it's not a focus on the specific, in this situation, I'm going to speak these words. It's focused on this, the concept, of the generic concept, that in this situation, I'm speaking and through, these, through this expression. I'm expressing this through speech. And that's, that's really, it's kind of tricky because it is really an expression through speech. But that expression represents the heart. And so we've talked about a couple of the things like, don't be quick to, um, to speak about your situation in an improper manner. Um, don't be quick to, do, to respond to the individual who is the stimulant in that, um, those kind of things. But it really comes back to this expression that you're making. Just like when we're seeing a baby, she's not speaking. She's making some expression. She's uttering. She's got this chattel thing. It's a goo-goo-ga-ga. It's not, uh, this is what I'm saying to you kind of a thing. And it's kind of a tough um, paradigm to, to bring out. But there is definitely an employment that is a speech concept. That there's something being uttered, definitely. But again, the focus isn't on the words being spoken. It's on that something is expressed through speech. Sure, yeah. yeah. By being slow into the speaking, the believer allows the Holy Spirit to accomplish the proper work and waits for the Holy Spirit to either teach or to provide the necessary recall of that which has been learned previously to the believer as his course of action in responding to the trial he faces. The third mindset is one which is framed slightly different by James in the language, and therefore its focus is slightly different. Notice in Bradus, ice, or gain that you lack uh, the word ta, which has been in all the other ones. So instead of ice ta lalesi or ice ta lakusai, you have ice or gain. And what it does is it's a definite article, and by dropping the art, definite article, James changes his focus from being on the realm of anger to the actual emotion of anger. So again, it's not in this realm of anger, it's on anger. In the, with the emotion of anger, it's unlike the other two here in speaking, James is not focusing on the what to do of anger, but rather on the possession of anger. anger. When you're angry, uh, be slow to being angry, not be slow into the anger. He's not telling you to be angry. He's, it's basically a prohibition against being angry quickly. Not being angry at all, but being angry quickly. <clears throat> the first two words have been previously studied. Bradius ice identifies an unhurried movement into anger. Again, this is not. Uh, uh, this is a deliberate choice that identifies a process, but it's not hasty. It's not um, hurried. It is an unhurried movement into anger. Anger coming from the Greek word orgain, which is a reference to impulsive, passionate, uninhibited anger. The probably the most Unfortunately, predominant example of this would be the word orgy in English, and it actually comes from orgay, and it's again, it's accomplishing that 
impulsive, passionate, uninhibited action. Um, this specifically is a reference to anger, not to sexual gratification, but orgain is from where we get orgy in the English language, and an orgy is an impulsive, passionate, uninhibited action. Now, orgain is that uninhibited, impulsive, passionate anger. It is therefore not planned out, not bridled, and not concerned with anything other than its expression. The believer is commanded in Ephesians 4.26 to not sin when they orgizestheg. It's from the same root as orgain, which is orgizo. Now, that's verse 4.26 in Ephesians where Jesus, or not where Jesus says, but where the Bible says, be angry and do not sin. Be angry yet do not sin. And then it goes on to say, um, at the latter part of that verse, that you're not supposed to let the sun go down on your anger. And that word is para orgizde which is actually that which comes alongside your anger, um, or these outbursts of anger. Usually when an outburst of your anger, of anger erupts, it causes more damage than uh, just frustration does. Um, now this is an anger which erupts out of, out of frustration regarding individuals or circumstances. Um, so in, in relationship to trials, as we get these circumstances that come in our life, we're not supposed to just go, oh, my tire's flat, or all oh, this, or all oh, that. It's supposed to be this concept that you're slow to these outbursts of unbridled, uninhibited anger. Now, given the nature of trials, the implication is that the believer is not, again, to quickly enter into a state of un uninhibited anger concerning the circumstance in which he finds himself involved, but to be slow to that. It's not prohibiting it, which is kind of interesting. But the point here is that you're not supposed to quickly rush into this because of, because of the, these trials. Um, there are times, and I think this is supported by the statement of Ephesians 4.26 of be angry and yet do not sin, there are times when there is a valid reason for this eruptive anger that comes from these frustrations. Now most often I don't think that's the case, but there are times when that is the case and I think that's clearly supported in scripture. Now as a part of this mindset of being slow to anger, James is identifying to believers that the believer not, got, not get caught up emotionally in the circumstance he faces, but allows him to remain in that position of being able to hear and respond positively to the ministry of the Holy Spirit concerning the trial. When we erupt in that explosive anger, after we've been frustrated, and this has happened time and time again, and I'm so sick and tired of this, and I don't care what happens, we're not listening to God. We have a feeling, and we're acting from it. Um, so by being slow into anger and not going right into it when the trial, trial faces, or trial surfaces, thank you, that's actually what I was looking for, I just couldn't get it, now, by not erupting into anger when the trial surfaces and when you encounter it, you're allowing the processes to work. Now, the three parts of the mindset that we've looked at of verse 19 are number one, make an immediate movement into a position of hearing and positively responding to the ministry of the Holy Spirit concerning the trial. Number two, be unhurried about your expression concerning the trial, not reactionary. And number three, be unhurried into uninhibited, eruptive anger concerning the trial. Well, because then we want to have 48 <laughs> other slides. Or 50, yeah, 49 other slides. These are the three parts of the mindset. And all, these, all of these parts, when you put them together, recognize that you are not letting this trial affect you as if you were in it and only in it. You're taking a look at this trial going, hey, there's a purpose for this, there's a reason for this, which goes back then to verse 2 where it says, count, what's it say? 
No. That's what I, that's what I ended up going. Count your many blessings, name them one by one. Count it all joy means to add it up and think about it because this trial produces this. And when you have this mindset, you're able not to react impulsively, but you're able to remember the biblical problem solving devices in verses 2 through 18 that James has employed and operate within them effectively. You're not just reacting to your situation. This is the mindset that James commands believers to have in order to utilize the biblical problem solving devices or filters they were just taught. Failure to do this will cause the believer to either attempt humanly to implement what they have learned or to be tossed around by the trial to and fro until its passage or the believer responds positively in his relationship with God and probably the exhortation and conviction of the Holy Spirit. The believer's response to trials then is one which is to be a thought-out response rather than a reaction which is humanly derived or performed, whether it's a reaction of a biblical problem-solving device or a reaction of human viewpoint. This should be the approach of the believer to those trials he faces in his life, which are designed to see what he is made of and can result in the experiential righteousness given the proper response of the believer. We respond positively the, the trial, which is designed to, t to see what we're made of, <coughs> can result in experiential righteousness and the growth that we're supposed to be in every second of the day. Questions?